This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Great War Channel Supporter Podcast 2020. That's a mouthful. I was going to say, you're being very deliberate about that, man. Yeah. Um, it's a new year. And what else can you do in January but go to the movies? I guess so. Being Canadian, it's... No, it's a great tradition. Usually it's too cold to do anything else in January, so why not? Uh, and it's a it's award season, which is also why some either critically acclaimed movies are usually running in uh, in the cinemas around that time. You know, it's Golden Globes and BAFTA, I think, uh, British Awards and the Oscars are in February, of course. And there is a certain movie, which is called 1917. Some of you may have mentioned it on all of our social media platforms a lot. Exactly. And by the year, you can already, you know, by the year, which is the title, which is when the movie takes place, you can guess that it's right up uh, our alley. And so we went to see it. And, uh, you know, we already heard a lot of things from you in the comments and it has been nominated for 10 Oscars, countless Golden Globes. I'm sure it will do well. It won a, the Golden Globe for Best Director or something, maybe? Yeah. I think it won a Golden Globe. Yeah. I, I mean, I Sam, don't really follow the Hollywood Sam stuff. Sam Mendes is the director. He has done quite a few movies already, you know, with critical claim and commercial claim. Um, important for this movie, Ro uh, Roger Deakins is the uh, director of photography, um, which is something we can talk about later, the photography, which is interesting of the movie. And he has done some incredible work as well. For last thing I, thing I saw was Blade Runner. 2049 that's that's something he did as well we're not talking about 2049 though but 1917 a much more interesting year as far as i'm concerned yeah and specifically we're talking about 6th april 1917 and i think 7th april 1917 that's these are the basically the two dates the movie takes place yes and uh now i don't know if there was a sort of larger intention behind this because it wasn't really discussed that much in the movie and might not have even been known uh, by the soldiers at the time. But the 6th of April, 1917, is the day that the U.S. enters the war. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not, not nothing that the protagonists talk about, so it might not be known at that point. Um, but April 1917 is, of course, another interesting month in the war. It is, before we jump to the main thing uh, of the movie, it is bloody April. Uh, which is, um, the, it was given that name by the Royal Air Force because that was a, a month in which they suffered particularly high uh, losses in the air, in the war, in the skies over the Western Front, which was partly due to the Germans introducing the Albatross fighter on, on the front, um, also having a new organized system, um, 
in terms of how they operate with uh, the pilot's education and everything. And that was one month where they really, um, where they suffered considerably less losses than the Royal Air Force and the French uh, yeah. Air Force as well. Um, and yeah. I mean, the other big thing about April, which is also not directly uh, a part of the movie, but contextually, it's the big Arras uh, offensive of the British, right, which starts the 9th of April. And of course, in the areas where the offensive is going to take place, there would have been, you know, more trench raiding going on and these types of things. I think the preparatory barrages began in some places on the 4th of April. Um, this is Canada's famous Battle of Vimy Ridge and so on. So this is kind of the general context um, of that time period of that those. So the main thing of concern to our protagonists and their direct superiors is Operation Alberich, which is the German withdrawal slash shortening of the front line. Um, basically, they're moving back into new, freshly prepared defensive positions uh, a few kilometers behind their original locations. And they're moving into what would become known as the Hindenburg line in English, more propaganda term, but for the Germans it was the Siegfriedstellung. Hindenburg line, Siegfriedstellung was basically a new defensive concept uh, that moved a bit away, uh, away from the earlier years of just having uh, a very, very deep, three layers deep trench system and was more like a, basically a death zone of like interlocking machine gun outposts and uh, targeted artillery strikes and was supposedly it, you know the shortening of the front and that new defensive system meant that the Germans could use their manpower more effectively uh, while defending that part of the Western Front. Well, it's significant they shortened the line and um, yeah, they were able to benefit. They also had extra deep and reinforced bunker systems that they'd spent time preparing there and so on and so forth. Uh, one, maybe a detail in a sense, but the withdrawal is kind of almost discovered around the day that the movie begins, so to speak, and the, the British are just kind of starting to move into the zone. But actually, historically, that took place a few weeks before. So there's a bit of a compressed timeline okay. for that. All right, so that's the historical context of that date when the movie takes place. And the two protagonists of the movie are two runners. Um, and they get the orders to advance um, across the then former front line after the German withdrawal uh, to advance um, towards a unit, a battalion that's um, about to launch an attack the next day because they think they have the Germans on the run. Uh, they interpret, uh, supposedly the commander interprets the German move into the, these new positions as them, you know, coll collapsing and basically running away and that it is basically a trap they're running into because, as I said, as we just said, the Germans have pre freshly prepared defensive positions. So, and the protagonists, the two protagonists of the movie have um, a certain, a few hours time to deliver that message to that battalion because um, uh, communications lines are cut and they, they are the only ones that can deliver that message. 
That's the premise of the movie. Right, and then in the context of that journey, um, they take us on a on a whole trip through various various um, representations of trenches, and then also less or sort of more untouched areas, uh, which would have been behind the former German front lines. They take us through well, what they portray as having been a former artillery battery position uh, from the Germans, then through a ruined town, uh, a small ruined town. So you kind of, you get a, a variety of landscapes, let's say. It's, I think it's the, movie, the, the, the plot of the movie and how it's presented basically meant that they could show the viewer who might not know much about the Western Front experience, apart from maybe having heard about the trenches, to give like a, a vertical slice of the British experience on the Western Front in like the, the second half of the war. The second yeah. half of the war, basically. Yeah. I think that's, the, that's kind of what the plot is a vehicle for, I think, in my opinion. Right. I mean, the, the film is not about, you know, sweeping historical representations and interpretations and so on. We don't have talk about, a lot of talk about, you know, politics or strategy or culture or whatever. Uh, there are a few hints as to some interpretations, which I guess we'll get into. But the real focus, um, and I guess how we can try to judge the film being reasonable people and not trying to be jerks uh, would be would be that focus of like okay, the eyes of these two runners basically. What's the 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 regular guys, the regular Joe, Tommy, Tommy's a uh, regular Tommy's sort of experience, and what would they what would have been around them in their environment? That I think is kind of the history of the movie more than um, any kind of meta interpretation that was yeah. definitely de not part yeah. of it it definitely didn't doesn't get uh, much into uh grand politics uh, the great game geopolitics any anything like that um so what part should we start with should we continue talking a bit about the premise which is something that we you know were plucking a bit apart already yesterday or should we talk a bit about the things like production design Let, let's go for well, for lack of a better way of describing it, let's go for the positive stuff first, and then maybe let's be jerky about it after that. Great. So I think what is immediately apparent when the movie starts, um, basically it start, starts like um, an arresting area just behind the front, is that the, whoever did the costume design and the production design clearly spent a lot of time researching this. I think for, I'm not a you know I'm not a 100% kit British kit expert of the time, but from what I've seen you know I've seen my fair share of frontline photos of that year uh, producing the Great War. Of Osprey books, uh, and Osprey so books, on. that yeah. kind of thing. I think it's that it's a almost you know perfect looking display of uniforms, kit, environments, trenches, these kind of things. Yeah, I, I really, I'm also not a sort of, you know, buttons and bayonets kind of expert or anything like that. Uh, but from everything I know, everything I've been exposed to, if I draw on my memories of having been fully clothed in a reproduction uniform down to the very itchy long underwear made of wool, um, it was 
pretty good for that. And the trenches, uh, I, I liked, I really liked the representation of the trenches. They had different kinds of supporting material. So they would have wooden boards in some places. They'd have kind of chicken wire in other places. Um, and they had uh, wiring uh, running along the trenches as well, which I think is often forgotten about, neglected, what have you. They also showed uh, not just brown mud, but white chalky soil. And that's something that uh, often gets lost on people who are not familiar with the region in northern France, but I lived there for eight months and worked there, um, partly underground in a restored First World War tunnel, and we were always covered in white chalk because that is the main component of much of the terrain there. And so I thought that was pretty cool because you don't usually see that. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it really boils down to even small details. Like immediately in the beginning, you can see that the, the two soldiers, the protagonists, they are wearing uh, leather jerkins, for example, which was something to keep away um, the humidity and, the, and the, uh, the mud to make it more bearable in you know, spring thaw kind of situations. There's little details like uh, uh, them wearing wristwatches, which was something that um, the Great War made, uh, like since time coordination in terms of like from, for example, an equipping barrage became much more uh, important. Uh, people moved away from um, the pocket watches that used to be fashionable before uh, to wristwatches because you, know, you get immediately have access to the, uh, to the current time. Um, the one of the protagonists is wearing uh, a lucky charm uh, on his other wrist, which you know gives a bit of context about yeah, superstition, that kind of thing. Um, I think there were other great details like uh, the street signs in the, tr in the trenches, uh, yeah. kind of soldier humor kind of thing, but also for orientation. Like uh, at some point, one of the soldiers literally asks uh, where he can find so and so, and the person answers by "You need to go to that street." And by that he means that section of the tr of the trench, which has a street name um, uh, in it. So I think that was immediately a very pleasant surprise when the movie started to see that kind of level of detail. And it continues throughout the movie. It's you later see later on see uh, vehicles. I think there's a Model T. Uh, you can see you can see a, a truck. Uh, the the one of the protagonists rides on a truck later on. Uh, you can see a tank. You At can one see, point, you can see a tank, a destroyed tank in a battlefield, and as far as it's it passes by rather quickly, but I'm fairly sure that the production designer used the correct wider sponson of the Mark One or Mark Two tanks uh, compared to later revisions of the of the British tank, and it even has the longer um, barrel of the gun, uh, even though it's stuck a bit in the mud, so it's hard to tell. But it seems that they were even paying attention to these kind of things. Which is something that, you know, on the one hand, 95% of the viewers uh, won't notice. But on the other hand, of course, you know, for the kind of, I, I think that's the kind of detail that also helps the, the actors and everything, of course, is to wear a period correct uniform and equipment for m things like movement uh, and so on. I think also, well, for the relatively limited proportion of the population that is kind of already interested, in my case anyway, uh, it helped me try to experience, or it helped me experience the movie without being distracted by getting annoyed at like glaring yeah. 
yeah. you know, basic errors. Although, you know, there are some things that we're going to pick apart, but generally, um, yeah, I, I felt that that really worked for me. And it became also, you know, it, it's also not something that they just spent time on in the beginning of the movie, but throughout the movie you can see that. Um, some, just out of my head, some things, uh, for example, when they cross no man's land into, uh, into the German trenches, the, which are now deserted, um, you can see that they are of much higher build quality and built with concrete and everything, yeah. which is something that you can see in contemporary accounts that the British soldiers... Deeper, better reinforced, yeah, all the everything. They, they, they intended to stay there and dig in to defend, while as the British mindset was a bit more, well, we actually don't want to be here all the time. We want to move forward out of these positions and there should be a breakthrough at some point. Um, you can see later on, as a, you know, there's a, a dogfight taking place and a pilot scene talk about the pilot scene a bit later, uh, but the plane that is crashing is an Albatross fighter, which is, as I said, the fighter that caused a lot of headaches for the Royal Air Force at the time. Um, it's kind of a bit weird that they went with a situation where the German that German plane gets shot down, but um, yeah, anyway, pilot scene later it, on. It happened. It, it's not statistically representative, but yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, the Germans didn't, you know, they they also suffered losses, much less so than the than the Royal Air Force, but they, they did. And um, and then later on, for example, the when the um, the protagonist arrives at that battalion where he's supposed to deliver the, the message, you see these chalky trench lines that you mentioned, which are then just freshly dug uh, positions, that there's no wooden reinforcements or anything. This is like a freshly improvised shelter situation, um, much akin to some of the scenes you see in the Battle of the Somme propaganda movie, uh, which you know featured some of these kind of scenes, and you see it in photos as well. Um, and for example, a uh, unit insignia, I think, uh, like he, you see, you, you can clearly see with colored ribbons and everything. Yeah, like different uh, unit patches on the shoulders when they go through the different sections of the trench and so on. So exactly. Yeah, um, yeah and uh, you know, things like uh, the notable differences um, between um, like lower rank officers, uh, kind of NCOs, sergeants kind of things, and then higher up majors kernels and everything, you can see the clear difference between these. Um, you know, the one of the uh, officers they meet later on, he's wearing a trench a trench coat and he has a swagger stick with him, uh, kind of thing. So that's that's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, like I mean, if you just, you know, the the thing is that this production design stuff is really cool, and I appreciated it a lot, and. You know, one would hope that it sets a standard for how these kind of movies that portray warfare, you know, should deal with effects like uniform and gear. You know, you, sometimes that this, this, you know, people roll their eyes because it's very nitty gritty. And as you said in the beginning, you can even get down to the buttons uh, of these sort of things. But on the other hand, you know, it implicitly at least, you know, helps for the entire atmosphere of the film. And if this is the sort of thing that you are looking forward to in a movie, you know, you can in this movie. And that I mean, it's kind of the like saving Private Ryan of World War One, I, I think, uh, in in a couple of senses, including the the sort of plot related stuff. But at least in in my movie going experience, 
Saving Private Ryan was kind of the first World War II movie that got a lot of press for the realism. Yeah, it, it right? was. A, it, so, I mean, it's, uh, Private Ryan back then was, I think, a step forward in how World War II is uh, represented, right. or warfare is represented in a movie. And I think uh, this movie now, and I think also Dunkirk, take a different approach in terms of how the camera moves and how you experience the action, but in terms of like trying to portray um, warfare as not just uh, shaky cam, blood splatters everywhere, constant action kind of thing. Uh, I think they also uh, incorporate a lot of the more recent research and understanding of warfare into the, into the movie because World War One is you know might be synonymous with trench warfare, but trench warfare didn't mean constant fighting. People did not live in the trenches for four straight years uninterrupted. Yeah, exactly. Like this is this is just obviously not how it went. And they, they took pains also to show things behind the lines. They showed like a field kitchen, they showed supplies being moved around. Yeah. And, and Stretcher uh, bearers, field yeah, hospitals, yeah. Uh, and that sort of thing. And also the kind of, uh, I think it tackles the atmosphere of um, before going over the top pretty well, uh, in terms of like the soldiers are now cramped in these trenches. They don't live there all the time, but in this situation they're cramped there. Uh, they're taking shelter. Uh, they're doing last minutes re reinforcements to the structures if you know an artillery shell hit uh, the sector uh, kind of thing and that aspect of trench life uh, was presented very very well all right but the movie is not perfect so you know could not be it would be no fun no if it were no it would also it, it would be an extremely long and boring movie if it were yeah exactly historically I mean, perfect the, the, yeah we can't expect that the, the caveat for um, explaining you know some of the gripes we had now is that we can judge these from a historical standpoint and I think it's fair to say that a few production decisions can also be criticized um, but overall in a historical movie about war there's always a struggle between you know for foremost this is an entertainment product uh, m hundreds of millions of dollars are invested into uh, a project like this and there is an expectancy of a return of investment. And that means certain people will say something about the script and say, you know, it needs to be an entertaining story and get people into the movies. It needs to, yeah, it needs to appeal to the 99.9% .9 of the population that has not been obsessed with World War I since they were 12. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I would say, and you know, some of our fans would probably agree, that there would be stories in the Great War that you could tell one-to-one -one and that would also me make a good drama. But I can tell you from script writing experience and you know studying film production that most of the people that make movies, you know, they will say yes, that's the case, but then also ignore you and you know <laughs> apply things like a three a three act structure and you know certain dramatic elements to it. I wonder uh, if any of their historical consultants, you know, were embittered by the final product. I, I actually don't think but that's the case because I mean, if you have a good historical consultant um, who has a few movies, they understand under, the under, movie under, game under as well. Yeah. They understand yeah. how this game is played. And there's only so much you can achieve. And I think 
someone clearly here convinced the, the director and the production designer to pay a lot of attention to you know the gear and everything that we talked about in length so and even the historical setting is kind of is pretty uh, pretty accurate and everything that i think you know maybe that's not the you, you not the hill you need to die on to say like hey the fact that uh, we know that in the battalion that needs to be saved uh, is the brother of one of the protagonists and the, uh, uh, his commanding officers <laughs> knows that. Um, the general knows that. The ge and the general shows up in a front... Okay, I'm starting to yeah, yeah, go... Yeah. Can I, and the, the general shows up in a front-line dugout to tell two... I forget that one's a lance corporal, I think. Uh, yeah. To tell them that one guy's brother is in the other battalion. I mean, there's no need for a general to do that. They would never do that. It's just to add weight yeah, to the per, importance personal, per, of the mission, right? So yeah. you have that lower level importance that, oh, it's his brother, isn't that dramatic? But then you have this artificially uh, emphasized kind of tactical or war-related importance because the general is telling you, I mean, the generals didn't run around in the frontline trenches telling privates and lance corporals, you know, to go run a message. That's it would be what passed the, down the chain. That's what they would have their run, respective runners for uh, as well. Exactly. Or telephone lines at yeah. that stage from, from that area would not have been cut. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's like the premise of the movie, kind of where it's, uh, where it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, some, some of the comments uh, from fans of The Great War and so on have been about the premise that, well, why would they send two guys to run? Didn't they have some other mechanisms? Could they have dropped a message by a plane? Could they have done X, Y, and Z? Um, from what I recall of when I did some more serious reading about the communications and runners and pigeons and uh, telephone lines being laid and how they laid them as they advanced and so on, it does seem plausible that runners are the way to go. Um, if your front line is not moving ahead, you can have your communications cut if the enemy is bombarding you because there'll be high explosive that, that cuts your lines. That doesn't seem to be the case here, right? The British are the ones, that, I mean, the Germans are the ones moving back. So there, there's no scenes where it shows that the Germans bombard in advance and break up uh, communication behind uh, British lines. So it's a bit of a question as to why the communication was cut in the first place. But if it was, let's just say that it was. Um, it wasn't the most reliable tech in the first place. No, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think it's perfectly plausible that you need to use runners yeah. uh, to and do that. Specifically on the point of homing pigeons, I just wanted to also um, uh, clear some confusion about that because I also saw these comments when I posted on social media about this yesterday. Homing pigeons are one-way communication. Yeah, yeah, they're going from somewhere up front back to where they know where to go. Exactly. So you can't, and, and this is like, the, the, this battalion that needs to be saved is in an unfamiliar position. So that battalion, they had pigeon carriers uh, with them and could send them back to HQ to deliver a message, but the HQ would have no position to send the pigeon back. Because right, right. how homing pigeons work is, um, they have a very sensitive beak and can locate the elect electromagnetic field of certain positions that they are familiar with and they remember that. That's how they can find back to almost 
any uh, place from you know incredible distances. But if they're not familiar with that position, then they have no reason right. to go there. And that uh, reminds me of, let's say, another uh, gripe about communication and, and command structure and so on. According to what we see in the film, the commander of this battalion, presumably a colonel, I forget if they mention whether he's a colonel or not, decides on his own that the Germans are on the run because of, I don't know what, there was no British offensive at the time that would have caused them for to you know withdraw on such a wide front. So apparently this colonel decides they're on the run and decides to send his battalion or it actually seems like it was two battalions, 1,600 men is more than one normal British battalion at this point. Um, and that's quite unlikely because an attack by two battalions is probably not going to be an individual decision by, um, by a colonel. Yeah. That's going to be part of something Especially not, on, especially not on a long, continuous front line. It might, exactly. might not have been a continuous trench system from the uh, North Sea to Switzerland, but it certainly was a continuous front line. So any kind of move to break in or through the German defensives... Like if you need your flanks to be exactly. protected and so on. Exactly. I mean, sure, maybe trench raids and things like that, but like uh, that, that was quite quite unlikely. So, so and, and I think in that, in that sense, that, you know, I understand why they went for the very individual uh, subjective viewpoint of these two runners, and it helps, um, you know, getting on eye level with them and being, you know, having a subjective uh, connection to the, to the characters. But in that sense, I think that's all, you can already see the cracks in making that decision in terms of, um, you know, making such a small scale story in such a big war is like then you need to, you know, make certain assumptions in the script that, you know, wouldn't have been the way. I mean, on the other hand, it that the emphasis is so much on the experience of the runners. I mean, your average grunt in the trenches had no idea what was going on outside of their immediate yeah, surrounding. Yeah, yeah, sure. So whether the colonel decided on the attack and that's unrealistic or not, isn't actually so central to what the runner's experience would have been. Even if they portrayed the decision-making more accurately, the runner's experience in that scenario would have been the I same. I mean, to be fair, I think that would have been a f fairly valid point to tell that story is if, you know, I mean, in World War I, you can always make a case for futility of war message in it. C certainly in a war of industrial attrition, like on the Western Front. And especially in the British context, because that's a very powerful yeah. narrative and the story could have just been this is your order deliver it because he's a lance corporal a he's not the, he's not supposed to know everything uh, B, uh, it's an order from his superiors like he's not going to flow flow this is you're, you're coming at it from a way yeah. too Prussian point of view no no <laughs> you need to have the drama and you need to not only have one dramatic driver but obviously you need several yeah that's why he needs his brother again that's yeah. exactly um speaking about Prussians let's talk <laughs> let's talk a bit about the portrayal oh, of, Lord. of the Germans and their movie oh yeah um, uh. so much like Dunkirk, that movie uh, 1917 
choose to uh, dance around the, you know, sometimes very vocal uh, part of the internet that, you know, says like, we, you know, the Germans are not always uh, evil and, you know, we need to change our, uh, the way how we uh, portray the German Imperial Army, especially now in World War I, World War II is a, you know, different story. Um, but uh, my comparison from Dunkirk was that 1917 also chose to basically portray the Germans as invi invisible. Invisible, mostly, yeah. Mostly invisible. Yeah. Except for a few shining examples exactly. so of humanity. The, the Hindenburg Line withdrawal you know, meant that the German Imperial Army in all its might and its million men on the Western Front was mostly absent from the movie and only indirectly influenced it. Apart from a few scenes, um, the first German, I think the first indirect thing that we know, uh, that we, we get to know is we see the, the defensive positions, the, which are portrayed accurately, um, and the, uh, while exploring and trying to make their way through the German positions, um, they come across um, a sleeping shelter uh, built into the trenches, and uh, one of the soldiers uh, sees a stash of food that they left behind and they move towards it. And then he realizes that the food supply is booby trapped uh, with a mine attached to a wire, like a, a trip wire mine. I think the trip wire is just on the, on the floor yeah. uh, before the entrance to the next tunnel. So, um, you know, you might, you know, it, you could say that maybe, you know, they wanted to show the Germans as especially barbaric, that they booby-trapped food supplies and everything, but this is actually something that they did. They booby-trapped the whole, their whole old positions, you know, of course, to cause casualties, but also mostly to slow down um, the uh, British that would be moving into the positions. Uh, so that was an accurate portrayal of what you know history uh, provided here and then we, you had a very big gripe with then that they come into an artillery pit basically a big one uh yeah well and this is actually you phrased it uh, best so i'm gonna i'm gonna cite you here in our chat after the film but what i noticed was the spatial relationships of things were off yeah and um um, yeah, you put it into, into uh, words uh, afterwards in, the, in that sense, because essentially in order to make the movie not 13 hours long and still having this impression of an unbroken shot, they had to compress a lot of the spaces. So they uh, cross no man's land, get into the German... No man's land being approximately 50 meters wide. Right, something like that, yeah. And, and you know, it starts in the very beginning of the movie there, somewhere in the back where you see, you can see like trees and uh, where they're hanging out and they're moving into the trenches immediately and like, let's say 250 meters... All of a sudden they're in the front line. Yeah, basically in the yeah. mud. Yeah. And then in the, in the German positions and then they come out and are in the artillery position, which also wouldn't be so close to... Right, the and they so they, they come out of the German line, uh, which is apparently 20 meters deep, and then they're in an abandoned artillery position in a hollow, and there are two things that drove me nuts. One is you wouldn't have your field artillery, you know, like 50 meters behind your absolute frontline trench, and second of all, the Germans had spiked the guns and destroyed them, but if you're 
planning a withdrawal, you're not going to do that, and they didn't do that. You spike your gun, and spiking your gun, by the way, means you block the barrel, and then you fire around, and it explodes the barrel of the gun. And you do this only as an absolute last resort to prevent the enemy from capturing the gun in workable order. And the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line was in no way a desperate rush job. No, it took several so, weeks of planning, months of... Months of planning and, and then some time to execute. Yeah, and uh, I would say that the... Um, I, I would say that, so the movie is uh, presented as one continuous shot. Um, and it's filmed in, like, with a steady cam, very much always moving with the characters kind of camera. And I, I understand where, you know, the appeal for this comes on paper and that, you know, you can present time as real time and make it, you know, a very urgent kind of thing. But I have to say that, you know, actually I think this make, gave a disservice to the movie and was not necessary. They could have just made like continuous shots in the trenches, which looked awesome, and then just advance time as the movie progresses and just make cuts. Because now, because then, you know, having like hard cuts between scenes, um, you don't give the impression of the geography, which is so off. I mean, I understand it artistically, right? Yeah. If you really want to bring this experience of being with them the whole time in the one continuous shot thing, you have to make sacrifices and space versus time relationship in yeah, real yeah, life yeah, sure, is but, going to be the sacrifice. But, but, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, so they did cuts anyway. They are, yeah. Right? So it's they, not a it's not a perfect uh, it's not a, a perfectly faked one shot look and feel. There are very obvious uh, cuts in a couple of places and yeah. less obvious in other places. So I, I think yeah. I, I think the movie wouldn't have you know wouldn't have suffered to, yeah. or wouldn't have suffered from, from that. Anyway. Now we come to, uh, they come out of the German positions, uh, find a, an abandoned farm uh, where the Germans cut down all the, all the cherry trees. That, uh, I did read that they destroyed like orchards and things, yeah. yeah. Um, and they also machine, gun, machine gunned all the cows. That were yeah, like, that, that I'm very skeptical. I mean, if there's anything that the Germans need in 1917, it's food. And you're not going to leave a bunch of cows dead in the field. You're not going to kill them when you're making a planned withdrawal. Like, yeah. It's debatable whether they would have been that close anyway because civilians would have been evacuated from a certain strip of land behind the front. We'll get to that um, later as well. But yeah, I don't think there were machine gun cows. Maybe someone out there can prove me wrong, but I was skeptical. So, on that farm, the Germans see uh, the dogfight uh, that we mentioned earlier, and the albatross fighter uh, comes crashing down into the farm, where they're currently. In a rush of humanity, the two protagonists decide to uh, help the German pilot from the burning wreckage of the plane and pull him out, basically, so he's not burning alive. Then, um, one of the protagonists that stays with the pilot says to the other one, get some water. Because the German is asking for water. Like, he's in bad shape, the bottom half of him is badly uh, burned, and he's, he's crying out, you know, helplessly for water. Exactly. So, and, and then 
then we follow, the camera follows the character, the character that gets the water, we hear a scream, the camera turns around, and we see the German pilot stabbing the other, the other main protagonist, who then, you know, a few minutes later dies from that, wound, from that stab wound. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, that was a tough scene for me because, for several reasons. One is, of course, as in a couple of other scenes that we're going to discuss, the German is portrayed as, in the end, what counts about the German's behavior is this, like, mindless urge to kill, basically. Also, if you're a pilot and you're as badly wounded as he was portrayed to be, right? Huge open burn marks on his legs and so on, lying there helpless, asking for water. It's surprising to me that he would A, have the strength and B, as a human, the desire to then all of a sudden stab a guy through two layers of tightly knit wool uniform in the abdomen. It just seems unlikely. Yeah. The I, I've seen some discussion about that scene already in the Facebook comments yesterday and some people said like, yeah, but he obviously was in shock and there was like a self-defense mechanism kind of thing. But then, but then, you know, then block the scene differently, like, uh, you know, make him, make him crash in his plane and then resist being pulled out, you know, to already give an indication. That way he was like, you know, A, they went out of their way to show the humanity of the British soldiers, and then on the, it also seems they went out of their way to show that that pilot was a dick. Yep. And that's not the only because, example of that yeah, in the film. Ex yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, that was a puzzling scene. Um, you know, could have, could have been achieved in lots of different ways. Um, for example, you said yesterday, I mean, if you want to get have someone, you know, if someone needs to die in World War One in a futile kind of way, then drop an artillery shell on him because that would be 75% of casualties accurate. Exactly. I'm pretty sure if you look at how many British infantry soldiers were knifed to death by German pilots, <laughs> some very very specific statistically, <laughs> this is not <laughs> this does not belong in any movie or any book or anything. Yeah. Just have a random barrage, a lost shell from a worn barrel hit nearby, and voila, you have your senseless death. Yeah. So yeah. you, don't, you don't need to vaporize them. You can just get a shrapnel to the abdomen and then. So that was uh, that's some, that, like a scene that left, left a bit of an aftertaste. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like that one either. So then the uh, the remaining character that he still needs to continue you know continue the mission uh, he gets now he needs even more right yeah. to yeah. save the brother the stakes the stakes uh, were upped and uh, he gets picked up by 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 some other british soldiers transported a bit down the line uh, then reaches a canal where the bridge has been destroyed so the trucks need to go around and he says like no no i need to go the direct way through the canal uh, which in, in that case also is accurate, the Germans did destroy infrastructure yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in, in their retreat. And then he gets shot at by a German marksman that's, uh, that's still left there. Um, why he, that German, single German soldier, is there? I, I, I don't know of a general policy of like suicide missions of leaving single guys hanging around in the zone. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, that's also again where the geography 
kind of thing collapses again from the movie is that I think supposedly the village he then enters that lies just behind the um, the canal is already then you know kind of like an outlier outpost kind of thing part of the German positions. I mean, there are Germans there. And there are more Germans there later on. But then as the proportions don't match up again. Because yeah. then, on the other hand, again, he is from there on only, uh, you know, a few scenes away from reaching the British soldiers again. And, yeah, and then also, you know, the general question is like, okay, why would that single scout be there? Uh, on the other hand, the Germans did incorporate entire villages into the Hindenburg Line uh, positions as well. The, the yes, but right on the other side of the canal of where that sniper is, the British trucks are yeah, driving yeah, unmolested into empty territory. So, I mean, we're talking like tw 15 meters away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, the space... Uh, Spatial aspects yeah. are weird. Uh, anyway, the, the, the combat is um, shown quite nicely, I think. Like, they pay attention to the uh, increased clip size of the, of the um, short magazine Lee Enfield rifle. I mean, they don't pay attention to the likelihood of that firefight between the two of who's going to win it. Yeah. Because if you, have a, uh, if you have a rifleman in a protected area in the second story of a building, shooting from the window at a rifleman who's in a sort of staircase who has to then expose himself every time he wants to fire, it's way more likely that the guy up in the second story house, you know, well protected, being able to keep his rifle still and aimed the whole time is going to be the one who hits. Yeah. Or, or if it but, would be a sniper, he would change positions. Uh, potentially, yeah. Like just to the next. But I mean, window. the position was so advantageous. Yeah, yeah but you know, yeah. there were two windows. For That's true. That's true. Um, anyway, the the um, he shoots the German uh, soldier, goes through the staircase into the room. A very Saving Private Ryan like scene where he's going up the staircase with the rifle because yeah. of that staircase scene. So 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 they, um, the, basically, the, he op carefully opens the door. The German shoots with his handgun, is wounded, and. The bullet uh, flings off the helmet. It's reflected by the Brody helmet. Yeah. Um, which, I guess, with a pistol caliber. Yeah, I mean, if it's like a, a small, like a nine millimeter, yeah. I suppose it's conceivable. And like in, yeah. a, in a flat angle kind of right. thing. It could happen. He shoots the German dead at the same time, we should yeah. mention. Yeah, it's a simultaneous thing. So, but anyway, we, we only see that German for a brief second, and he also, uh, even if he's about to die, uh, uh, is. Uh, Killing machine. Killing machine till, till the end. Definitely. Then, you know, there's a running scene into the village. Uh, you know, uh, it's night now. Uh, you see, I think, the, the use of the flares and how they showed how the flares illustrate the front line was very well done. And then he comes across the next German soldier who is apparently stationed in an empty house, uh, in an empty warehouse. Uh, it's a young German soldier and a drunk German soldier. The only a kind. very drunk, so drunk that he's vomiting. Yeah. So he moves into the warehouse, is surprised by the young German soldier, and then uh, ha another hand-to-hand -hand fighting uh, scene ensues uh, with, with knives out. Well, not at first though. At first he just, he, he grabs the German, covers his mouth, and says, you know, be quiet. And of course, 
as soon as he takes, uh, the German agrees, he nods, and then as soon as uh, the British guy takes his hand off the German's mouth, the German then screams to his drunken buddy, you know, Englishman. And then the hand-to-hand -hand fight ensues, and uh, the British guy triumphs yet again and stabs the German to death. The drunken German runs over. Even if he's drunk, he still wants to kill and uh, gets smashed in the head. Who knows whether he recovered. Yeah, and the, yeah, and that scene was again puzzling. So A, it's yeah. like the third time in a row that you know the German can't help his nature, but to uh, but to do it. And then you know, on the one hand, they went out of the way to show that it's a young German soldier, and by that time, you know, they uh, the German the classes that just turned 18 were put, uh, turned into the uh, put into the into the front lines. So to show that he's very, very young and obviously scared, um, he, he doesn't look like a better hardened veteran kind of soldier. So they could have you know, used that specifically that scene to show that some of the younger Germans didn't agree with you know, that war or that they, you know, in that situation, fear and survival would have... Uh, would have overcome the urge to you know, fight with the enemy or kill yeah, or whatever. Exactly. And the movie could have still played out the exact same way if they did that. Like, the, 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 uh, he could have overcome that one obstacle a different way as supposedly the two obstacles beforehand, and the movie's message would have been even more poignant, in my opinion. So that's like where I said, like... <sighs> and it would have been a, like more historically responsible, I think. Yeah. You know, not all the whatever 13 million men mobilized by the by Germany in the First World War were like bent on killing to the last breath and drop of blood, obviously. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then there's a few chase uh, sequences with uh, Gewehr 98 shot from the hip. Oh my God. <laughs> I, yeah, that was like the German, <laughs> this is another German now, other than these two that we just mentioned, the young and the drunk, there's another few shadowy Germans in the town. And so the German sees him, <laughs> yells, starts to run, and then fires from the hip. I mean, look, I was never in the military, but that seems like the... If you want to maximize your chances of not hitting someone, that would be how to do it. Rather than you don't say anything, you raise your rifle to your shoulder where it's stable, and then you fire. I mean, that also just from a pure muscle memory uh, standpoint, that's how you get drilled to do it. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, that just leaves a lot of... I, I think that's like the biggest pitfall that the movie falls into, is that, you know, they could have either no, really don't show them at all, like in Dunkirk, you never really actually see them, yeah. apart from in some airplanes, uh, as like mechanical menace kind of thing, or, you know, if you have three different scenes with German soldiers, then show us different facets of the German army as well. I think that's like a, a, simply a lost opportunity here. And um, and they do that with the with the British actually. There are some who are kind of um, jaded. Jaded, yeah. They're yeah. sort of like like uh, there's one lieutenant who's kind of you know his uniform is askew and he's not very motivated to help them but in the end he, he helps them with instructions or whatever and then you have the kind of more fire breathing 
colonel at the end, uh, played by Cumberbatch, right, who really yeah. wants to go over to the attack. Yeah, and, so. you, and you see all kinds of variations of the Tommy. Um, you see, you, know, you hear different accents. Uh, you see six soldiers, like from the British Indian Army, uh, and so on and so on. So there, they clearly try to show that you know the British Army was not one coherent, uh, a monolithic thing. Yeah, the thing, so and you know, and of course, the German Army was the same thing. So, and then there was one thing we debated about this yesterday, and I would be curious to know what the other people who saw the movie thought about that. So, the 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 protagonist uh, starts running since he's discovered by the Germans from that uh, young guy who shouted der Engländer and um, basically jumps into the river uh, that flows by, uh, flows through the town nearby. Uh, some of our French uh, local fans have already pointed out that there are no waterfalls <laughs> in the entirety of northern France. Yeah, that was a very serious waterfall. I noted that too. Yeah, anyway, uh, long story short, he basically um, comes to a halt in the stream at a, no na na a natural obstacle where a tree collapsed into the river. And he, th he then realizes that that trunk also stopped human bodies from uh, floating further down the river. And he basically has to, the way he, he gets out of the water onto the riverbank is essentially by kind of swim crawling over a whole bunch of yeah. dead which, rotting which bodies. Which is, you know, uh, ties back into, you know, some of the bodies and the body horror kind of thing that they do in, the, in No Man's Land where it makes sense. So the scene is over fairly quickly, but I'm, I, at first I thought, are these German soldiers? Uh, I actually, I actually, for some reason, at first thought they were French soldiers because a couple of the overcoats seemed blue to yeah. me. But but then we yeah, but, but, weren't but, sure. but then they also had like brass buttons, uh, kind of thing. And I don't know. I think on second, like when I when I blinked and looked a bit closer, I think these were like bodies in civilian clothing, 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 which for me, and that's my big question mark. Did the movie try to imply that the Germans committed a massacre in the village nearby from where the, uh, from where the soldier is coming from? Well, I mean, the French woman, because in the village he, he accidentally runs into a French woman who's hiding in the ruins with a baby. Which is also nonsense, but... Yeah, because the civilians would have been removed. But the idea that she is somehow hiding out kind of, you know, World War II style in a, in a hidden spot also implies that like there was just a basic danger that the Germans would murder civilians. Yeah, but the, you know, at that point, every, every capable man and woman was deported to be a forced laborer uh, into Germany, you know, which is also not nice, but is a whole different kind of story than you know, a, civil, a civilian massacre. So for me, that scene was kind of like, I didn't know what to make of it. I, I, like the movie, it's, it's a shock to the protagonist that these bodies are there. He kind of like is on his last stretch, but it's not explained where these bodies are coming from. And for me, you know, even the implication that there was a massacre, I think, and that, that it could be read like that is a weakness of the movie, but I'm not sure if it was the intention. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. If they were civilian bodies, then that to me is probably my, my most severe critique yeah. of the movie because yes there were several thousand French civilians who were executed on various uh, pretexts by the German occupation forces 
but there was like no policy of you know murdering the civilian population. And that was in 1914. What you yeah, said. it was. Yeah, it was in the initial like mega tense, hyped up. They're shooting at us from all the windows, kind of hallucinations and so on. There were some other, you know, for spying or perceived alleged spying yes, and so on. Yes, true, true. But like, you know, we're talking infinitesimally small numbers compared to World War II, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, if the movie wants to include that, then, you know, make a story out of that. Right. And, you know, about collaborators, spies, whatever, whatever. kind of Matahari style, basically. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, just leaving that there and basically playing with our perceptions of World War II film imagery is problematic. And in the end, you know, that just put a dead so British soldier there, have, you again have the same effect, scene plays out exactly the dead same. British, German, maybe they're French from a while back when the French still held that part of the line, whatever. Yeah. And Forces, the, and, yeah, and the no. scene and the scene plays out exactly the same. So, you know, puzzling. So I think, yeah, I mean that that was like kind of like the last big thing that was hard to swallow. I mean, there is the he he then finds the the unit, um, runs. A, <laughs> he he has to base, uh, has to advance several hundred meters through a single file uh, new trench system to reach that kernel, and he's you know, coming there last minute, basically the first wave of the attack already goes over the top and he can't make it through the trenches and then decides to run in front of the, <laughs> in front of the trench system while the artillery explodes and basically in a 90 degree angle through to, uh, to the advancing um, attack wave. Nicely done, but also sounds weird. Kind of thing, and then in the end arrives at that kernel with some more obstacles to tell him that the attack is supposedly to be called off. And Cumberbatch, in that uh, who plays the kernel, is supposed to be, yeah, I think the kind of uh, fire breathing kind of like I want to move forward, I want to end this war kind of general. But I think they um, uh, manage to avoid the um, lions led by donkeys kind of thing in that scene a bit. Yeah, you, you made the good observation yesterday that they, they sort of took a bit of the edge off of him uh, in how he reacts to the situation in the end when the second wave is uh, called off. There's the lions led by donkeys thing, there are like little hints of it, but it's not overwhelming. Yeah. Like this one kind of jerky officer in the truck when they're driving, you know, yelling in a posh accent at the soldiers to yeah. move the trees and blah, blah, blah. But it's not an overwhelming thing. And I mean, you know, that classist kind of mindset was certainly, you know, existed at that point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Cumberbatch basically said, you know, just basically rolls his eyes a bit because in his mindset, they have the Germans on the, on the run. Uh, and then he basically says like, yeah, okay, they're going to tell, tell me to stop the attack now, but next week they're surely going to tell me to go over the top again. Which is correct, a correct assumption. Right, um, and there were there were two little things in that uh, section as well that stuck out at me a little bit. When the soldiers are all kind of crammed into the jumping off trenches, and they're still moving around, so they're not getting into position. They're, yeah, they're still getting into their jumping off positions with fixed bayonets, and uh, from what I've read. The fixing bayonets is basically the absolute last thing you do before you step over the parapet 
into no man's land because it's extremely dangerous to be running around with the fixed every thousands of guys or hundreds of guys with with fixed bayonets in a, in a cramped space um, not only because you can injure people but also because they would get hooked on stuff and all sorts of things like that I mean a rifle with a bayonet's a very very long thing and a trench is a restricted space yeah and the other one was the artillery you have these explosions of artillery shells going off the British are being shelled as they go over the top and all the explosions um, happen as the shell hits the ground and throws up, you know, ground and stuff like that. So, yes, I suppose uh, there were contact fuses which would cause a shell, whether it were a high explosive shell uh, or, or, a, or shrapnel to explode closer to the ground. But my understanding of artillery and the various types of anti-personnel shells with shrapnel is that they were timed to explode higher above the ground so they could spread the balls of shrapnel in a kind of cone going downwards for maximum damage. And if you are, if your objective is not to destroy trenches but to take down men attacking, exposed attacking in the open, infantry. exactly, who are attacking over the open, you're going to be wanting to use shrapnel. And that's not what was portrayed. Yeah. It would have been a very gory movie all of a sudden if they did that. And uh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, and everything, but... Uh, it would have been probably technically harder because here they would just have to have like their, their fake explosive charge on the ground. They would have had to like chuck them in the air well, you and can, have them you blown can, up you in know, the air. I guess you can do it. The, the, the thing is, I mean, you know, there's a lot of invisible CGI in the movie. We get a bit... Oh, into, that's true. We yeah, get I a bit into, into that, production yeah. design here now, but yeah. everything... You can assume in almost any historical movie uh, from, uh, you watch nowadays that, you know, has a historic setting or a future setting that anything 50 yards from the, uh, from the protagonist is already CGI background that doesn't exist. So, like, you know, some of, you, you saw it on some of the trees... Uh, that were obviously, you know, CGI trees and everything. So, and, you know, it, maybe it would have been, you know, a, a couple million more in CGI budget, but, you know, you could you could have done that. But again, that would have been like a splatter fest <laughs> if they did that. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's also the consideration that you might not want to have an R-rated uh, war movie. Anyway, um, that was one hour, five minutes of us talking about wow. 1917. Um, it's a good movie for sure. D definitely watch it. Um, I, th I mean, we don't get well-made uh, World War One movies anyway. If you want, as I said in the beginning, a ver nice vertical slice of different aspects of the Western Front. Um, if you have friends who don't know much about the topic, you know, by all means, go watch it with them and see like if you know certain things are of interest to them, and then basically tell them, give them the link to our channel so that they can watch the other stuff or, of course, recommend some history books to them. Um, I think as an introduction to the topic, I think the film would do a very good job. Um, Agreed. E even though there is a lot to nitpick about the story and everything, but especially compared to previous more movies, I think we are making big steps forward here to kind of find the, a good uh, symbiosis between history and uh, drama. Agreed. I enjoyed it, I have to say, on the whole, as a as a cinematographic experience. Yeah. Cool. So, 2020 January Ramble, and there will be another um, podcast episode very soon because we recorded an expert interview. But I, is, before I put everything together here in a 
over 90 minutes to our <laughs> file, I'm just going to uh, publish these files separately so that the interview we did with Steve R. Dunn about the Baltic, uh, the, the Royal Navy in the Baltics in 1919 uh, gets its proper time as well. Indeed. So that's it for today's podcast it and is. we will see you in the next episode. Before we go, shout out to Illuminati Rex for telling us that the webbing had the wrong color in the movie. That was all I paid attention to in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs>